This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 27th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. morning's reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of God. Well, again, thank you for being here. I'm going to pray this morning, and I'm going to pray a little more um, intentionally, intensely this morning. As many of you probably know, should know, um, this past week, the state of New York passed a law uh, that was one of the most grievous acts uh, our nation has ever done, allowing for the murder of children up to nine months in the womb. Um, and it is uh, horrible and uh, deplorable, but more than anything, grievous. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, this is not a new uh, thing for the world, but when the world begins to institutionalize such things, it is just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. So I'm going to pray, uh, and um, this is not a political campaign because I don't think this is a political thing. Uh, but it is without doubt something that as Christians we need to be aware of and ask, what is our responsibility? What is our role? Uh, and I guarantee you, one is not to be silent. Uh, so let us pray uh, to that end and ask the Lord to um, help us uh, in this dark time. Lord, you are God, the one true God, the only God, the Lord and creator of the universe. You are the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the ender of life. This is your world and you are Lord, whether those in it acknowledge you or not, give thanks to you or not, fear you or not. You created the world and made man in your image to display your glory, and yet it seems the image in us has been very marred and so stained by sin that it's barely recognizable, it seems. We desire, Lord, to see Your holiness restored in us and in this world. Our generation shares the cry that Isaiah declared many centuries ago, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This world, Lord, you know is full of darkness, and we all know that. It's hard not to see. It is broken. It is lost. It is seeking sin, inventing sin, approving sin, and now even institutionalizing sin. The least of these in this world, Lord, are ignored. They are abused. They are murdered. And those you have put in power to do the justice that is good, the justice that you love, have instead made laws approving that which you hate. 
Forgive this country, Lord, for its refusal to submit to Your ways in an attempt to rule itself and determine what is right in its own eyes. You have warned us, Lord, what happens when we try to rule ourselves. When we reject Your Word, it leads to death, death of everything. Forgive us for our complicitness. Forgive us for our ignorance. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our passivity. Forgive us... as we have often closed our eyes to this evil because it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, or unpopular. There are unwanted young people and old people who are suffering on your watch. There are unclean addicts and abuse victims who are suffering on our watch. But these have voices because there are many voiceless unborn being murdered every day. And Lord, you say that you set your face against those who sacrifice your children to false gods. But you also warn those who see it and do nothing. Lord, we know that there's nothing new under the sun. We know that there has been since the very beginning an increase of corruption in the world. That the wickedness of men is great on the earth. That every intention of the thoughts of their heart is evil continually. We know this. We are not thankful for this evil, Lord, but we are thankful that it doesn't surprise you. We are thankful that you are working, not despite it, but through it to bring about your glorious plan. We are thankful for those whom you have stirred to welcome the unwanted and abandoned, if you will, children who need adoption into their homes. We're thankful to those who have stirred to care for the elderly who cannot care for themselves. We're thankful for those you have stirred to go into prisons and those you, who commit to walking alongside those addicted and struggling. And we are especially thankful for those you have stirred to fight for those who cannot at all fight for themselves. Whether politicians in the Capitol or plebeians on the sidewalk, Lord, we are thankful for their work and we ask that you will continue to bless them and give them courage. We also pray and look to you, Lord, for what else are we going to do? This world is broken beyond what we can fix. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So even as we work to help the least of these in the different areas you have called us, even as we love the unwanted and help the unclean and work to protect the unborn, we recognize that nothing's going to happen without you acting. So we ask that you remember your people, remember your creation, remember your name, and restore all things once and for all. Please, Jesus, return quickly. Give us patience while we wait. Courage. Give us peace. Give us hope and give us joy beyond the crucifixion that we seem to perpetually endure. Do not lead us to despair, but help us to trust that you are working despite what we see. Do not allow the enemy to bring division in your church, but unity in standing for the sanctity of all life, everywhere and in every way. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. <clears throat> You may not be committed to working in active ways to address any of the needs that I addressed in my prayer, but I would ask that you do at least pray. Prayer, as I've said before, is not preparing us for a greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And we'll talk about that today. Well, if you're joining with us, thank you for being here. We've been working our way through the first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and we go verse by verse through books of the Bible like this. Um, Paul, the apostle, wrote this letter 
to new converts in what was a new church plant, and he's writing to them about what is their new normal in life that came through Christ. And we are reading it thousands of years later. And thousands of years later, it is still teaching us a very simple but powerful truth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth changes everything. Faith in His death, faith in His resurrection, faith in His return changes everything. And that begins with our relationship with God, extends through our relationship with ourselves, and then continues in our relationship with one another. And really, everyone and everything. Now, at the conclusion of this letter, so we're near the end, we'll have one more sermon and we'll be done. But at the conclusion of his letter, after proclaiming these really bold truths, he begins to talk about the different relationships that exist in the church, the gathering of God's people, the family of God. And he has asked last week, as we saw, that the members of the church would esteem their divinely appointed leaders in love, that they would love their pastors. And he expects the leaders, the pastors, to minister faithfully and for the members to let them do that joyfully, to not make it difficult. He then begins to instruct, as we saw last week, the members themselves, which would include the leaders, on how they're to minister to one another. And he talked really about three different kinds of people in the church. He talked about those who need to be rebuked because they're settled with sin. They're okay with their sin. He talked about those who need to be encouraged that, that were really struck by sin. Sin in many ways came into their life and they experienced great loss and they needed to be encouraged. They were faint-hearted. And then there were those who perhaps we describe as struggling with sin, who needed help. And so without compromise, but with great care, he said, be patient. Be patient with those who are settled in sin. Be patient with those who are struck by sin. Be patient with those who are struggling with sin. Don't just react to them impatiently. Respond to them with patience and love. And the reason that Paul has to say that he has to say, be patient, is because it's really hard to be patient. It's not easy to shepherd people this way. It's not easy to rebuke in love. It's not easy to admonish or to encourage those who are struggling with sin. It's hard because, like real sheep, people are dumb and difficult and demanding. And guess what? So are we, right? We talk about, yeah, that's right, those sheep. People are hard. Like, so are you. You're a difficult person. I'm a difficult person. It's hard to minister to one another. It takes patience. It takes love. So to help us now, as we help others, Paul shifts away a little bit from some commands he's been giving about our particular responses towards other brothers and sisters in Christ and now he begins to command particular attitudes in the Christian. Not based on responses to others, but just based on your own disposition. He says that we should not only do the hard work of shepherding others, but we should also actually commit to doing the hard work of shepherding ourselves. 
Now, everyone knows, and if you don't know this, this is strange, but everyone knows, I think, how difficult it is to maintain what we'll call heavenly attitudes in the midst of a hellish storm. It's hard to be heavenly in the middle of hell. Now, sometimes those storms come from the outside. But sometimes that storm just comes from within. We know that this church that Paul is writing to, Thessalonica, was planted and continues to exist in a city that is persecuting Christians, likely killing Christians, but making it difficult at least for Christians. There's a storm coming from the outside, and so as you read what he commands here, you're like, man, that's got to be hard with those external circumstances coming to maintain these attitudes. But as we live in a world that doesn't have that kind of persecution, though I think we have some, certainly not to the degree that Paul is speaking to, but even without that, let's be real, many of the circumstances, the normal circumstances of life without any external persecution make it difficult enough. And the internal struggles that we have do, just like external struggles, rob us of joy. And they fill us with fear. And they even lead us into despair at times. And so Paul is not going to say, hey, rise above it. Buck up. Obey. He actually doesn't command us merely towards attitudes that are empowered by the self. In fact, he's going to compel us toward actions that are empowered by Christ. In other words, he's not merely calling us to feel what we should, but to believe what is true and let truth govern what we feel and what we think. To focus on what is true. So let's begin in verse 16 here with his first admonishment. He gives really three basic admonishments, and these aren't these are instructions, they are commands, they are gentle, but they're very specific. And the first one is rejoice always. Rejoice always. And to that, for those of us who are dealing right now with something that's difficult, we think that is impossible. The shortest verse in the English New Testament is John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. This is actually the shortest verse in the English, I'm sorry, the Greek New Testament. Rejoice always. Rejoice means to be glad, right? It means to be full of joy. It means to be calmly happy. Now, Christians today are characterized by a lot of things. A lot of things. And sadly, I would argue, joy is probably not the leading descriptor. Okay? Unless you're Aaron Mortiz. I know. But it's amazing when you, first of all, when you read something like 2 Corinthians 11 which is a list of all of Paul's pains and sufferings. And you read his letters, especially the ones from prison, how much he talks about joy. 
Paul talks a lot about joy. In more than just instruction, he actually uses joy as the greetings. It's a salutation, the greetings to his letters, the farewell to his letters. It's always joy, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Consider how we greet each other, right, in today's world. How you doing? We're always saying goodbye, see ya, goodbye, love ya, or love you if you're like, you know, really risky. Love ya, what is that? How often do we greet each other though, we greet one another really by first sharing our problems or our struggles? How often do we greet someone who we know is struggling with this kind of encouragement? Imagine Rejoice always. First thing, hey, rejoice always. When you're leaving, rejoice always. We would be fairly dismissive of it, I think, because it would sound cheesy. It ought not. It's a call to something greater. It's a reminder of something important. I think essentially we are dismissive of that kind of idea even because most of our joy in life is focused on ourselves and dictated by, dictated by our past experiences, our current circumstances, or our future expectations. I'll be joyful if this happens. I'm not joyful because this has happened. I can't possibly be joyful because this is happening. It's rooted in ourselves. And so Paul wants to take the focus of our joy off ourselves, away from our circumstances, and root them firmly in God. Because feelings change. Circumstances change. And we can't control most of them. And He doesn't want us to be robbed of the joy that we can have because of the things we can't control. And He doesn't just want us to, like, sit in joy. He actually is going to compel us to share this joy. Greet one another in joy. Can you imagine the impact that that might have if we endeavor to do that as a people? If our greetings and farewells were rejoice, rejoice always, rejoice always. Not once, not twice, but all the time. So rejoice always is probably better understood as keep rejoicing. To which our response is typically, I could keep rejoicing if this wouldn't keep happening. Or if this wouldn't have happened. That qualifier is not there. Keep rejoicing. He writes the same thing in Philippians 4.4 from prison, giving us clarity of the kind of joy he's talking about. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice, in case he didn't hear him the first time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always is a big word. And again, I say rejoice because you're going to be tempted not to rejoice always. It's hard at times to find joy in this life. And that's typically because it doesn't take but a little bit of irritation, tragedy, time for that joy that thing you're finding joy in to be taken away. We can't experience momentary kind of moments of happiness in this life. And as we go through Ecclesiastes, we will see that 
the teacher Solomon does say like, yeah, you should find joy in, in some simple things. There are opportunities, there are echoes of Eden, if you will, where we can find joy in some of the good gifts God has given us. But it's hard to find that enduring joy, right? It's hard to find enduring joy in just relationships. It's hard to find enduring joy in work. It's hard to find enduring joy even in some of our hobbies because given enough time, those things and the joy that come from them fade. The kind of abiding joy that I think Paul is calling us to, that he calls us to in this verse 16, he calls us to in Philippians 4.4, is the kind of joy that can only be found in the Lord. He doesn't call us to seek joy from every circumstance. He commands us to find our joy in God, with God, through God, in every circumstance, good or bad. Essentially, it is choosing, making a choice to knock, seek joy primarily in circumstances that, again, change, that we cannot control. But we're not merely commanded to feel joy. It is beyond feelings. It's a choice of joy. And I believe choosing joy is kind of this double decision. Like first, we are making a decision to always celebrate who God is. That never changes. God is always good. God is always great. God is always generous. God is always gracious. God is always in control. God is always God. And in that, we can rejoice regardless of how I feel. Regardless of what I think. It's about deciding to let truth govern those things. I don't feel this right now. God, it don't seem like you're in control, but what's the truth? The truth is He is. And so I'll take joy knowing He is in control despite what I see, despite this storm, despite this difficulty. It is making a decision to celebrate who God is, but more than that, it is a decision to remember what God has done. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the Israelite people reminded, remember, remember what God has done. Remember that He pulled you out of Egypt. Remember that He divided the sea. Remember that He made you His people. Remember, God is the one who created. God is the one who redeemed. God is the one who is going to restore. We don't find joy in what we understand or even what we feel. We find joy in the truth that governs both of those things. And so we remind ourselves of that truth. That is why we gather often as the church to be reminded of what is true because it's so easy to fall for what our lies. Our feelings lead us that way. Our thoughts deceive us. We need truth to rein us back in. So rejoice always. Keep rejoicing. Not in this, in this. How you do that, we'll return to it. But let's deal with the second admonishment, which says, pray always. Pray without ceasing, it says in verse 17. This second admonishment is a difficult one, but it just means pray constantly. I posted this quote on Facebook a while back. It caused no little ruckus, but I'll say it anyway. 
The reformer Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Now taken literally in a very wooden sort of way, we'll immediately reject Luther's statement as unrealistic and miss the point entirely. Paul pretty much says the same thing. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. Constantly pray. Why? What does he mean by that? What does that look like? Well, again, Paul is not merely commanding an attitude, but an action. He is commanding us very simply to pray a lot. All the time, in fact. In every circumstance we find ourselves in. Now, the act of prayer is so many things. But it's certainly, perhaps more than anything, one of the most tangible acts of submission to God's authority. It is a humble acknowledgement. I mean, a real, not just, okay, yeah, Lord, you're God. No, it is when I get before my God, when I go before His throne, whether on my knees or just simply sitting there, I am humbly acknowledging my self-awareness that I am not God. You realize that's the biggest problem with the world. See Genesis 3. As I bow before the King, the Lord of the universe, there's an active confession that I am a creation, that I am not worthy of myself, that I am weak, that I am vulnerable, that I am in need, that I am not the center of the universe. If we consider, right, as Jesus would pray, His disciples asked Him, like, okay, so can you teach us how to pray like you? And so He did in the very beginning of the Lord's prayer which I'm sure is familiar to many of us, right? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now there's so much we could say about those words, but those words are so simple and yet powerful for you to really pray that constantly and believe that the act of prayer, if, it, if it's governed by that kind of attitude, and even those very words, is a declaration of allegiance. And in many ways, if you're unwilling to pray that, there might be a problem because it's a confirmation of citizenship. I know who I am and I know who you are. And it is a submission of our desires. A submission of our kingdom. A willingness to go, okay, your kingdom come, your will be done, and it unfolds that way. And we see that if our desires are not met, that He changes our desires to meet His. The decision to pray constantly comes and begins from a deep belief in the truth that the Father is God. I like how Tim Keller said it in his book on prayer. To fail to pray then is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. But it's not just that. The decision to pray constantly also comes from another belief. 
It begins with the belief as Father as God, but it also comes from the belief in the love of God as Father. The Christian's not only aware of their place in this world, the Christian in Christ understands their place in God's heart. Like God the Father is a perfect Father, and He is a heavenly Father, and He desires to give us His best, and knowing He's God, He has the ability to do just that. And so we come to Him as dependents on our heavenly Father, saying, I can't do this. I don't have this figured out. I need you. And He says, yes. I delight in blessing you. I think a refusal to pray perhaps is a revelation of our unbelief in the authority and the love of God. Despite what you say you believe about yourself, despite what you say about what you believe about God, our actions or lack thereof declare our true heart attitudes that we really don't believe we need God or that He doesn't have time for us. But did you know the Bible in Jesus' own words says the Father wants you to pester Him with prayer. In Luke 11 where Jesus teaches the Lord's prayer, He follows it with a parable of sorts about a guy knocking and knocking And knocking, he says, and so will my Father answer those who pester Him. Pester's much more negative than he speaks. But he also says this in Luke 11, verse 9, following that same parable, he says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts. Like I slipped that in there. If then you who are evil. I love that. If you, bad dads and moms, know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more? Will the perfect Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Right? This isn't, I'm going to bow before and I'm going to ask Jesus for what I want. You can't do that. But in many ways, you're going, Lord, I need You. Give me what I need. I trust You. I trust You more than I trust myself. Your ways are above my ways. You know better than me. You see better than me. I trust You. We pray always because Jesus says God's always listening and He's always answering. The third admonition is perhaps even more disturbing. Thank always. Give thanks in all circumstances of which immediately the fill in the blank in our mind writes in that circumstance which we can never imagine giving God thanks for. I think we read these admonitions and many times reject them because of their simplicity. 
Oh, it couldn't possibly mean that. Rejoice always, except when this happens, right? Give thanks in all circumstances, except this circumstance, right? As it is with joy and prayer, thankfulness is more than an attitude to aspire to. It's a decision to act rooted in belief about what is true. It's interesting, Romans 1 is a very sobering description of the depravity of man. And as you read through it, you learn or you read a lot of things that you would go, oh yeah, that's sin, oh that's sin, oh yeah, that's gross, that's this, that's immoral, that's this. It's like, it's pretty obvious. And then there's some verses in there that are not so obvious that kind of speak to the real heart of what's going on in man and why he pursues many of those things. In Romans 1.21, it says this about unbelieving mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The absence of gratefulness, the absence of acknowledging that I have actually received something many things from someone that this world and everything in it is not a result of anything man has done but everything God has done. The refusal to be grateful actually characterizes the non-believer. Spiritual entitlement, call it. And this implies, obviously, somewhat the opposite, that thankfulness toward God is something that should characterize the Christian. But that's not Paul's instruction exactly. What he says, what he commands is us to give thanks in all circumstances, meaning we, we have an act of obedience, not just an attitude, there's an action. It's not that it doesn't matter how much you feel as much as it's believing that the decision to give thanks actually will begin to change how you feel. Without doubt, giving thanks in all circumstances is what I often refer to as a difficult obedience, especially when you're in the middle of difficult circumstances. But Paul doesn't write, give thanks for all circumstances. Give thanks for every horrible thing that comes into your life. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, it's getting our mind off the circumstances, the mind off the self, the mind off the situation and, and the things that are happening and setting our mind on God, the one in whom we are thankful to. Paul refuses to root the command in us or our circumstances, but directs us toward God. Now, Right now on Netflix, there's a show that's taken the world by storm. No, it's not the British Baking Show, though you should watch that one because it's amazing. It's a, a show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Right now, people are like, oh, I may have watched that too, episodes, right? It's based on a book. Marie Kondo is in, an Asian woman who wrote this book, um, and it's about helping couples and families, I think what she says is clear up clutter and find joy. So because everyone was talking about this, I tend to 
at least watch an episode or two of what everyone's talking about. And so I watched an episode recently. It was both intriguing and disturbing. It was intriguing that I think there's some goodness in what she's doing, especially as you walk around or drive around, you see how many storage units continue to be built to hold all the stuff that we can't fit in our gigantic homes. It's like, well, we probably have a little bit of clutter. We have too much stuff. And so I think living simply is a great thing to aspire to. But what was disturbing was the process she goes through. And so what happens is she comes in and, and kind of walks through the house, gets a tour, and they start going, yep, here's all like the thousands of clothes I have. Here's the thousands of Tupperware things I have. Here's all the clutter. And so they kind of survey the whole house. And then they sit down and before they actually begin to deal with the clutter and what can only be described as somewhat of a pantheistic spiritual moment, they take a time to bow and thank the home. Literally, they're quiet and the two people are kind of like bowing and they're thanking the home for its provision and thanking the home for its protection all these years. And thanking the home for this and that. And then they begin the work. And so as they go to do the work, the first thing they tackle is clothes. And so in this particular episode, she had tons of clothes. And she has a particular process that you go through clothes. She's like, I want you to take each item. I want you to thank that item. So they do. She, thank you for being such an amazing shirt that covered my belly as it's grown all these years. Or whatever. And you can't help but watch that and go... What is going on here? That seems at least odd, but maybe evil. You know, like evil, like, yeah, evil. There's certainly a lot to be thankful for in this world. James tells us that all good gifts come from God, and we ought to be thankful for all the gifts that come into our life. I think that an attitude or disposition or decision to start actually even listing those things to be thankful for is a good thing. It could be said that as Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, to yes, whatever is true and, and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and anything worthy of excellence and anything worthy of praise, yeah, we, we should dwell on those things because it does impact us. There are many good things that we could thank God for, but in truth, there's only one thing that is always true and always honorable and always just and pure and lovely and worthy of praise, and that's God Himself. Like, there's nothing wrong with being thankful for stuff, though I think even be thankful for stuff in the way that that show displays is wrong. But pull back a little bit and go, it's nothing wrong with being thankful for stuff but being thankful for something should lead us to be thankful to someone. Thankful to the God who provided a home. Thankful to the God who promises refuge even without a home. If our thankfulness only leads us in horizontal ways, then it's really not the kind of thankfulness that Paul is talking about. 
because there's plenty to be thankful for and to covet and wish you had. But when we talk about being thankful to God, thankful for what He has brought into our life and even thankful for what He's withheld, that's a totally different disposition. Now, the question though is, why does Paul say we're supposed to do this, right? Why, why rejoice always? Why pray always? Why be thankful always? And here's what he says, for this is the will of God. Now, quite simply, Paul is commanding us. And he's saying that the basis for this command is the will of God, that rejoicing always and praying always and being thankful always is a matter of obedience. Oh. I mean, it, if I don't feel... Th- doesn't matter what you feel in terms of obeying the command. Yes, feelings matter. But truth matters more. Even though our feelings or our lack thereof may actually make this kind of obedience difficult, we need to understand that it's actually rebellious to go against God's will. That we have to choose joy. We have to choose to pray. I don't know if I feel like praying. I don't know if Paul asked that question. I don't know if I feel like acknowledging God's authority. I don't know if I feel like acknowledging that I need God. You start playing that out, it becomes pretty disturbing. This is difficult. This obedience is difficult. I would argue it's actually impossible if our obedience to these commands, if our rejoicing and praying and thankfulness is actually rooted in ourselves. If it's just simply an act of my will and I just have to muster up enough strength in myself, I will tell you right now, good luck. This is why he says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That, that this ability to rejoice always and to pray always and to be thankful always comes through faith in Christ. So again, it takes it off our circumstances, off our feelings, off of what we understand and what we even like, and it puts us squarely on Jesus. So when we talk about joy, why can we rejoice always? We can rejoice always because Jesus loves always, and His love cannot be taken away regardless of circumstances. Being in Christ, that idea of in Christ, is one of the most frequently used descriptions of salvation. And according to Ephesians 1, for those who are in Christ, those have their lives securely hidden in Christ through faith in His life, death, and resurrection. Those who are in Christ are chosen in Christ. They are redeemed in Christ. They are forgiven in Christ. They are adopted in Christ. They are loved in Christ. They are blessed eternally in Christ. Those are not what are going to happen. That is what is. Those are indicative statements. Those who are in Christ are loved. They are blessed. They are adopted. They are forgiven. They are redeemed. In Christ, we are no longer defined by what we have done or not done, or what's been done to us, not by pedigree, not by heredity, not by education, not by accomplishments or lack thereof. We are a new creation. The old has been tossed out. The new has come. 
And though hardships present themselves through our sin and then just sin coming into our lives, nothing changes who we are in Christ and His love towards that, towards us. And in that I can rejoice. Always. This is why Romans 8, 35 tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Those are all circumstances. He says in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, in case I forgot something, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we are in Christ, we don't have to fight for joy. We actually fight from joy. Not for it, from it. It's a totally different fight. We can rejoice always because Jesus loves always. And nothing's going to stop Him. But we can pray always as well. Why? Because Jesus is always helping. We pray constantly. We pray persistently. We pray habitually because we recognize, yes, our need for comfort, our need for strength, our need for forgiveness, our need for direction, and the only one in whom can actually satisfy those needs. And we don't just pray at a great need. We pray at a great expectation that Jesus is going to do something. You realize, I hope, that Jesus didn't just go to heaven after His earthly ministry to take a break from His role from shepherding His people until the end. He is actively interceding now, pleading our case perpetually before the Father, saying, nope, I covered that. I covered that. He confessed it. I covered that. But more than that, He is standing ready to strengthen us and to assure us and to walk with us and through us, remind us of His love for us, fill us with God's presence as He responds to our requests. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's prayers are some of the awesomest prayers. I don't think awesome is a word, but that's okay. The greatest prayers you can read. In Ephesians 3, listen to, he says, the reason why he prays. So think about that. Why would I pray? Why would I pray always? So I can get my desires? No, so you can get the greatest desire that you may not even recognize you actually have, but you do. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see like, why do I pray? So that you'll understand the depth of Jesus' love. You'll know the fullness of His love, the height, the breadth, the width of His love, which is the basis of joy. Oh, they're connected. Absolutely. But then He even says, now to Him 
who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Amen. Like, do you believe that? We don't pray always because we think we have it figured out better than Jesus could figure it out. And He says, you realize that He is able to do far more abundantly than anything you could ask or imagine? We will pray when we're convinced of that. When we know that deeply. But lastly, we can always thank because Jesus is always doing something in us. He's always working. Like much of our thankfulness should focus, as I said, not on what has happened or what is happening. Um, actually, I said that wrong. What is happening and what will happen, but on what has happened in Christ. What God has already done in Christ. There is much to be thankful for. But most recently, um, I was finding it difficult to be thankful. Maybe you've had this experience. Um, I was, we had a trying hardship in our family. And I'm sure that my hardship is probably less or more than some of the other hardships. So I'll just speak about my hardship. It was hard for me. Hard for our family. And as I was counseling with a sister in Christ, who was actually my sister, though, Marin, but I thought I'd say sister in Christ to make it sound whatever. I was just talking with her on the phone and um, about the pain of the trial, how difficult it was. So yes, sometimes pastors need pastoring too. And she asked me a question. She said, have you thanked God for this yet? Now, I wish I could have been like, of course I have, Marin. I'm a pastor. This is what we do. Godly all the time. I said, no. I said, no. Now, I know I've said already in this sermon that it's not about being thankful for every circumstance. It's being thankful in. And by God's grace, I do think we get to a point at times in our life where we can be thankful for some of those things that we never would have chosen. I'm not suggesting we all need to be there, but my hope is that we all get there someday as we consider some of the hard things in our life. But I told her no. I told her, in fact, um, it's not that I'm complaining to God. I'm not angry with God. I'm not in any of those ways. I just feel like I'm kind of sitting with God and we're just kind of sitting there silently looking at each other. And by God's grace, I did get to a point within a couple days where I could thank Him. Where I could actually thank Him for some of the things that had come into our life that I never would have chosen. And it was amazing what it did to me. It's not that we're thanking Him for the evil. Thank you for that horrible thing. That's amazing. This past week, I've talked to two people who are uh, struggling with cancer. One is Susan. Another's another uh, 
woman in our church that um, I won't name prayed with both of them. Remember sitting down with Susan, and it might have been Kaylin sitting down with her because I don't remember who sat down with her. And he asked, How are you doing? You know, the first thing came out of her mouth so thankful. Really? And I would like to say that I'm like, Of course you are. Praise Jesus, right? She's, she's struggling through cancer, right? Like, what are, you, what are you thankful for? I'm so thankful for this cancer because, and she just named stuff that's happened. Same thing happened when I went and prayed with this other woman who um, just had surgery recently. And the first thing she says, I said, how are you? How are you? I'm thankful for what God has done here and here and here. And I'm like, So we're not thankful, like, for the evil. I understand that. And there's a weird tension between those two. But we're thanking in advance for the good that He promises to bring through that trial. Isn't this what the Apostle James teaches us, right? Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Like there's a decision being made. It's not just feel joyful at all the bad things that are happening. No, there's a count it all joy when you meet various trials. For you know if you know. There's truth that's governing how I feel. Truth governing what I understand. Truth governing what I see. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is doing something. He is taking something out that maybe shouldn't have been there or building something in that needed to be strengthened. And we may not fully understand it. We may not see it. But He says, believe my truth, not what you feel, not what you can see, not what you can understand. We thank God not only for what we have seen Him do, but we also thank God for what He is doing that we cannot see. And where do I get my inspiration for that? The cross. Can you imagine the disciples sitting there going, what happened? What is going on? This is horrible. This is the worst thing possible. Where are you, God? He was on the cross in the middle of it. He was not distant from it. And even if we can't see the resurrection, we know the resurrection came and we can trust that it is meaningful and not meaningless. That God is working in the midst of it. God is doing something that even if things begin to die, Jesus has the power to bring life from death. So that is why we give thanks. Not because we understand not because we see perfectly, because we know the one who does. Well, there's much to say. Well, our time is coming to an end, and so I want to just end with verse 19, and I'll revisit these same verses next week as well. But verse 19 says, don't quench the Spirit. I will argue that we quench the Spirit when we reject His truth. 
We quench the Spirit when we deny His help, and we quench the Spirit when we depend upon ourselves to fix everything. The ministries of the Spirit, among other things, are joy, our prayer, our thanksgiving. But we hinder the ministry of the Spirit when we grieve Him through self-pity, self-reliance, and self-glory. Notice the common word in those. Self. So let us all confess our tendency to dwell on ourselves. Let us confess our tendency to depend on ourselves. To trust ourselves. Even the truth that comes from within that isn't truth at all. Our tendency to dwell on ourselves like this really doesn't lead us to be more joyful, prayerful, or thankful. In fact, it leads us to be much less. Let us ask that Jesus will allow our attitudes to be shaped not by our ever-changing circumstances, but by the unchanging truth that comes from being in Christ. And let us seek to be filled with the Spirit of Christ to walk in the Spirit of Christ and to trust in the Spirit of Christ together as we dwell in His Word, as we speak the truth and love to one another, and as we remain and remind each other, rejoice always, pray always, be thankful always. What a glorious way to greet and to say farewell to one another. I pray that will be our heart because in doing that, we are basically asking everyone to lift their eyes up and believe in the truth more than the circumstances around them. Let's pray.